Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. I got an interview for you right now. Who is it with? Well, I'll tell you. Andrew Gelman. We're going to talk all about statistics, polls. Man, here's how you know that I'm a political nerd. Here's how I know that you're a political nerd if you're listening to me talk right now. There's a moment in which Professor Gelman says, I was talking to my friend about some early polls in the 1988 race between Dukakis and Bush, and I had an epiphany. Oh, I mean, you know, that's catnip, catnip. Love it. All right. Before we go any further, a reminder, you can support this show by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go if you want to support this show. For $3, at the $3 level, you get the bonus shows. Show on Monday, show on Friday. It's a good time. It's a blast. Everyone's having a really, really good time when you are at the $3 level on our Patreon, which you can find at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Anyhow, what do you say we just head on into this interview, huh? This is our chat with Professor Andrew Gelman. My guest today is Andrew Gelman. He is a professor of a professor of statistics and political science at Columbia University. Andrew, welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be here. We are going to talk all about data journalism and polling in our modern world. Obviously, we are. Uh, <laughs> I, I think would it be safe to say, Andrew, that we are in terms of the modern political watchers understanding of polling uh, after the 2016 election would, would it be fair to say that there's a complicated relationship with polling right now uh, sure uh you know i i guess let, let's let's start here uh, uh what do you think the role of data journalism in modern political reporting is well obviously there's polling that's not that's not particularly modern, right? So, so polling is nearly 100 years old now. Uh, there's more awareness of political analysis. Um, there's more of a sense that presidential elections are, much of them are determined by the economy, and there's a larger awareness that off-year elections are, a lot of them, a lot of that is determined by um, people wanting to balance the government. There's more political polarization. So there's an awareness that a lot of the campaigning is aiming at just a small subset of the voters. And one thing that years ago that we talked about with annoyance was that as, as kind of uh, news hounds, we want to know the horse race and who's going to win the election and who's ahead and who's behind. But as citizens, we really want to know what the, what the policies are of the candidates. 
So one question is, why does the news tell you so little about the policies and, and, so, and so much about the horse race? And one reason is that most people already know ahead of time who they're going to vote for. So the policies doesn't really, in some sense, it doesn't in, inform their vote, uh, but they're still, it's still important to them who's going to win. Well, I guess that 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 also kind of draws to the the, the two factors there, which is there's what a voter wants and then there is what they read slash click on slash turn on the channel for. And that is what the media provides. I I think that that there is obviously a, a, a tremendous I mean, the reason why I think we have a complicated relationship with polling now is that, A, we always want to see them. Right. They, they, they make us happy. They make us mad. They make us frustrated. Uh, they make us uh, hopeful. And at the end of the day, whether or not that is accurate to what they are supposed to represent, they are catnip for anybody who cares about politics. Yes, it, it, it does seem that often we're observers rather than participants. So that's somehow to be a major part for most of us to be a participant in politics, you have to be part of a group, but you can observe as an individual. Now, what, what was your take on, you know, because th- th- there was a, a, a popular sentiment that uh, and, and it's one that I disagree with, but I'm going to repeat it here that, that the polls got it wrong in 2016 and and there seems to be this kind of weighty judgment that uh is is often i think a, a stand-in okay. for the, the media as as a whole but 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 did, when i say the the polls got it wrong in 2016 what's your reaction so they said that hillary clinton was going to win by four percent of the vote and she only won by two percent of the vote something like that <laughs> so that's you know that's wrong uh, she didn't win by as much as, as predicted in the national elections. Um, and I, I think you know, polls can be wrong, and the part of it is, is that people change their opinion between the, the poll and the election. I think most of polls being wrong has to do with survey respondents not being the same as voters. Yeah. So, a lot of people vote. The presidential election, something like 60% of eligible voters turn out to vote. But poll participation is below 10%. So who participates in the polls? There's some kind of weird people um, who are willing to answer surveys um, or who are reached in, in some way. So there's a lot of effort to adjust for the polls. And in certain states in the Midwest, uh, well, several of the states were, were off in the polls. And, I, and my sense of what happened there was that, um, that not that the people who responded to the polls were lying, but that the people, the respondents weren't a representative sample of the population of voters even after adjustment. In short, I think those polls did insufficient adjustment. And it wasn't just Wisconsin and a bunch of other states. I, I don't have the chart right here, but I think maybe North Dakota, West Virginia, a whole bunch of states where the polls really underpredicted Trump's performance. And I think that they just were not getting a representative sample of voters in these surveys, and, and they weren't sufficiently adjusting for who they were getting. So you said a word a couple of times there that I do want to circle back to, and that is uh, adjustment. Just for folks who are not 
uh, up on on how a survey is done and how that is translated into polling numbers. Can you just give us a real quick brief explanation of what adjusting a poll is? So if I do a telephone poll, I'm going to get too many old women and not enough young men, for example. So you want to adjust by age and sex. So you you because your sample is not representative of the population, you downweight the women, you downweight the older people, and you upweight the men and the younger people. You have to adjust for other factors than that. That's just a start. But basically, you reweight who's in the sample uh, to better represent the population that, that you're trying to represent, which in this case is the population of voters, not the population. It's not all people. It's all the people who are going to vote when Election Day comes. And that is also something that, that seems to, at least in the, the chattering class on Twitter and online, seems to be a, a controversial element, or at least a, a misunderstood one, that uh, if you disagree with a poll, well, then really the reason why that it, it doesn't show what I want it to show is that the key demographics that would help my candidate or my cause are under adjusted or, or not adjusted for enough. Uh, is- I think it's great. I think it's great to have people out there online ready to snap and attack any poll. Like as a pollster, you want to be ready. I mean, you don't want bad faith arguments, of course, but it's good. It's good that, that if you're a pollster, that you know that if you screw up, there's going to be somebody uh, trying to say what you did wrong. And that's happened to me, too. In, in 2008, I think it was 2009, I made some maps after the election about how different groups of people voted. And then some people online like were really rude to me, and they, they <laughs> like, said I did everything wrong. And they were right that I was wrong. They were wrong on why I was wrong. Like they, for, I, can tell you, it's not, I can tell you the whole story if you no, want. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I want to hear this. Well, well, they said we were using pre-election polls and then um, adjusting them. And getting our our big thing was that we were getting estimates for how the election would have gone if only rich people, only middle income people, or only poor people had voted. And from that, we used survey responses on people's um, yeah we used survey responses on people's incomes, um, but. Uh, we had to do some statistical modeling, and, and the actual problem was that we didn't do – well, our model had some problems, which is kind of interesting. I can tell you the story. But anyway, some people correctly looked at the map and realized like some of our state predictions didn't make sense. Like, we, we, we had these maps and had all the details, and it was all there. So it was clear that we had screwed up. And I just hadn't noticed it because somehow I'd been looking at the whole map and not at the individual states. Um, but they criticized us by saying, oh, you have to use exit polls. That's because those are polls of voters. Pre-election polls, they're wrong. And these people were wrong because <laughs> exit poll, pre-election polls, just another poll. Exit polls have a lot of problems. Yes, you don't get non-voters in the exit poll, but you miss a lot of voters. Exit polls can be really biased. I mean, there's a whole – you can adjust exit polls too. But the point was, yes, they were rude to me and their criticism – they didn't. Their criticism was coming from the wrong direction, but they were right that I did something wrong, and, and I'm glad that I was out there and that they criticized me. So I, I think the idea of people going out there saying, I don't agree with this poll because blah, 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 I think that's great. So uh, with, with, with that in mind, that obviously this is a very complicated field, and, and you know, I've, I've been saying here on the show for the last couple of weeks that as we are looking at 
uh, polls for who's going to win the Democratic nomination, who's going to, and, and more specifically, because I think that the Democratic nomination ones will have effect in a, a, a closer time frame than, let's say, the head-to-head polls of whether or not Biden would beat Trump right now. It's kind of this, it's similar to predicting the final score for the World Series in two years and in, in, in the deciding game of the World Series in two years. It, there's there's a lot that can change between here and then. Uh, but right. the one thing that I do think is very interesting, and we saw a gigantic trend toward it in 2016, are, and uh, I would, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like uh, uh, Nate Silver and 538 were the first to kind of pioneer or popularize a consumer-facing uh, aggregate map and a, a percentage of how much chance somebody has to win. And in 2016, you saw a lot of those out there. Uh, and and that's where I think uh, if if at least there was a crystalline moment in which people could say, well, look how wrong the polls were, it was something like, a uh, 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 upshot in in the New York Times having Donald Trump with four percent chance of winning uh, two weeks out from the election. Uh, do you think that those are something that are a net gain to people's understanding of polling, or are, are they are they good for informing people? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's good that they said it was four percent. You know, they screwed up, and that's how you like do better. So that's you know that's too bad, um, but. I think that, like, then you screw up and you do better next time. Now, primary is another story. Primary elections are hard to predict. They're much. I wrote something about this for the Times in, in 2011. Like, why are primaries so hard to predict? The general election, you have, well, just about every general election is a rematch of the previous general election, and mm-hmm. um, the the candidates have party cues. They have generally they have much d- distinct ideologies distinct positions on a bunch of issues. There's only two can two major candidates, so there's no reason to do strategic voting or worry about electability or throwing away your vote or any other other concerns. Um, the can the two campaigns are roughly evenly matched. You have months to decide how to vote. Um, the primaries it's it's much different. There's a there's a rush. Uh, when the primary you know, when the primary election comes, it might be just two weeks after the previous primary in some other state. There's continuing information coming in. The candidates tend to be unequally funded. You don't want to waste your vote on number three. You worry about electability. It's a lot more going on. It's just inherently harder to predict because of that. You just, um, so I think first is we, we have to recognize that, that that's just yeah. um, you, you, you can't have that. You can't have that expectation. And indeed, Nate became like he, he he Nate's done a lot of great stuff. But what really put him on the map was an analyses of polls in the primary elections, because because like really like doing poll aggregation is fine. Like anybody anybody can do it and actually like anybody does you know lots of organizations <laughs> lots of news organizations I, that's, do it that's that, that 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 i think is is kind of the one thing that i do think i i, I would be curious i'll be curious to see in 2020 as everybody's staffing up and ramping up for their 2020 coverage if as many outlets do their own poll aggregates because i don't know how many really brought a lot of value well it's it's not hard to do and 
it's fine that Nate did it, but what I'm saying is what, if, that's not where he started, and that's not what sure. somehow gave him all, all the respect. It was analyzing the primaries and, and dealing with that. You know, that, That's kind of much more of a challenge because things are – Things are changing very fast, and and this is you were saying Nate Nate as in Nate Silver, not Nate Cohen from the Upshot. Yeah. Oh well, I know both Nates. Um, they're both <laughs> they're 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 both fine. But yeah, I was talking about Nate Silver when you about that. Okay. Okay. And what's funny? We way back when my colleague and I we, we had a paper on why uh, came out in 1993 on why are presidential why are um, the presidential polls so variable when elections are so predictable. And it's actually a paper we wrote because um, my colleague and I were sitting in his office in, 19, in 1988 and during the Dukakis-Bush campaign. Dukakis was nice. way ahead in the polls. And we never thought Dukakis was going to win, or we, we thought he might win, but we didn't think he was going to destroy Bush, even though he was way ahead in the polls. And so the question was, if we know as political scientists that Dukakis is not going to win this election by 15 points, and yet he's 15 points ahead in the polls, who are these voters? Like, how come, how come we know something that the voters don't know themselves? And we, we looked at poll, we did light. So it took us years to do this. It didn't come out until, it didn't come out until 1993. That's how oh, wow. political science moves slowly. Like we were motivated in 1988. We gathered a bunch of polls. We gathered 60 polls from the year 1988 from the general election, did all sorts of analyses. A you know, paper got published. But the, this, this story we ended up coming down to was that people do, most people do end up voting in a kind of predictable way. That's the direction where they move, but they don't always, they don't always realize it. Um, they don't always realize it right away. Um, they don't always realize it themselves. Um, but as a, when we did this project as kind of a, as kind of a side project, we had to demonstrate that the election was predictable. Yeah. So we did a little election forecasting in, in 1992 to estimate the probability Bill Clinton would win in each state, the probability the Electoral College would be tied, the probability that Clinton would win the Electoral College and lose the popular vote or vice versa. So we did all these things, but like there was just a different era. Nobody cared. <laughs> so it was it was funny. Like you have to be like there, people just like it wasn't something that anyone wanted to know. It was so really was a, a different a different era in so many ways yeah you know i, I think the, the 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 big moment that i can remember uh, uh 538 specifically and i would say the uh, a kind of little mini supernova for aggregate poll data journalism uh was the 2012 election when 538 predicted all 50 states and you had the whole is nate silver a wizard.com and everything there was there was just this moment where it, it seemed like Barack Obama wins. Uh, there's a specific uh, element of you know college educated uh, uh, liberal voters that are very excited by that, and they were very excited by the fact that the numbers said it was going to happen. Uh, and and then from there we get this gigantic explosion, which I think on one hand is great that we're having more and more people look at the numbers and analyze these polls and weight them the way that they're going to. But by the end of it. It felt like there were a lot more people uh, who, you know, just considering the model was like, all right, well, there's this percentage of chance to win or something like that that had egg on their face, which is unfortunate because I don't think it's it, the numbers are the numbers. The numbers don't have feelings. It's just how we present them. 
Yeah, I think that people can be overconfident. So, you know, as I said, the polls polls are not representative samples of voters. They, we'd like them to be, but they're not. So it's necessary that we adjust them in different ways, and we have to realize they can be wrong. Some colleagues and I wrote a paper um, where we, we looked at a bunch of state polls over, I think it was about like maybe several election cycles. We looked at um, state polls for president, um, Senate, and governor, and we looked at the official margin of errors of the polls, and then we looked at the actual error, looking at comparing the poll to the election outcome itself. And we only looked at what was going polls from the two weeks or so before the election, so not not early polls, but late polls. But we found that the reported that the actual errors were like about twice as large. On, like, if you pretty much have to double the reported margin of error to be to have an accurate margin of error for these things. Just because, again, there are sources of sources beyond the survey formula, because a survey is not just drawing balls from an urn. Yeah, but I mean, really, it's like you say. I mean, you know, ultimately, you know, the election is about real issues and real values, and it it is important. Like, it's people are going to want to know, and, and definitely camp, campaigns want to know who might vote, who are the susceptible voters, who are susceptible to influence, and so forth. So people are going to be doing polling, even if there's no news media at all. But yeah, of course, you have to be careful that, you know, as I said, the whole horse race thing can trivialize it. And the idea that people, the idea of people thinking about like the election as if it's like the NBA finals and they're rooting for one team or another, you know, there's a, a limit to that, right? It's, yeah. That's a little empty. It, it trivializes it to some extent. Now, I want to go back to something that you had mentioned with a, a, the paper that you wrote that there is a reliability for a certain subsection of voters. And I just want to make sure that I, I got what you were saying right, that when you were looking at that those numbers for Dukakis and Bush, that you knew that it was going, that, that based on certain demographics, no matter what people were telling pollsters, certain voters were going to come home for George H.W. Bush. Is, oh, is that correct? I say, we wrote the paper years later, so who knows what we knew in, in, in 1988. Sure, like in, sure, in sure. In 1988, when Dukakis was ahead, my, my colleague, a political science colleague, said I, that, sure, he's ahead, but there's literature in political science that you can forecast the election from the economy. The economy in 1988 was doing okay, um, so he didn't it didn't seem like the kind of election where the challenger would win by 15 points. Gotcha. So, so there was this, this was like Dukakis was like Wiley Coyote, um, you know, after he wa- ran off the cliff. Now, did we know he was going to lose? No. Did we think he was going to lose? I'm not sure if we even thought he was going to lose, but like we, we didn't think he was that head. And so see often, we some I want, I wrote a paper a while ago called sorry I keep referring to my paper. <laughs> that's fine. That's academic fine. Academic me talking. Um, called we, we we it was called I think the um, the random walk versus the mean reversion model of politics and the the random walk model of politics is like the way people think about the stock market, which is you have the polls and they're at a certain point and the candidate is as likely to go up or down. Uh, it's down. It's like it, things are a random walk and and I think often. Some educated people 
kind of believe, fall prey to believing in this random walk model, in part because they've heard people talk about the stock market as a random walk. So it's almost like a signifier of being quantitatively educated that you understand the concept of a random walk. Like there's some way in which that's people like to think about things that way. Mm. So, but we realized and where we believed at least in 1988 that it wasn't a random walk, that when Dukakis was ahead by 15 points, that we had a feeling that we knew which direction he was going to go. Now, again, this is, this is the general election. I think it's much harder in the primaries. And a lot sure. of people thought when Trump was ahead in the primaries, he was going to go down and he didn't. Um, general election is a little bit different. But anyway, if it's true, like what, if that's not the case and what you actually have is something more like mean reversion, which is voters going to where you predict they're going to go, then there's this funny question of how come the voters don't realize it themselves earlier. And things have changed a little because that was the two, that was the 1988 election. Now there's with polarization being what it is, there's a lot fewer confused voters. So yeah. I think there are a lot. There's darn as many voters who are sitting there thinking they're going to go vote for the Democrat, and then they end up switching. Yeah, that is that is is is, is such a fascinating development. Is is that we we really don't have a ton of persuadables, right? Uh, and and now the question is all focused on inner party turnout. Like, uh, can you survive? <laughs> can, can you either survive a primary and then reunite the tribes or, uh, uh, you know, in, in Trump's case, uh, where is his coalition four years into his presidency? Because if he has the same one, then he stands a really good shot with a good economy. But if he doesn't, then he's in real trouble. Yeah, I, I think so. It, I, I don't know, but it, it's Trump's case is unusual in that candidates will traditionally move to the center after they win the primary and, and Trump moved to the right. Um, and I, I, I wonder, I don't, I don't really know, but I, I think part of it is I suspect that part of it is that Trump was like always in a, a weak position with respect to his, his party and he kind of needed his core supporters in a way that like a Democratic nominee such as Hillary Clinton or, or a different Republican nominee wouldn't have needed. So Trump kind of maybe needed to move to the right just to keep his, to sort of shore up his core supporters. And, and that, was, that was kind of unusual, that the, the election in, in that way, the, the way the campaign went. Oh, certainly so. Certainly so. But then I think what, what you saw was just how intense that polarization was going to go, that even if even if a candidate uh, did not do a traditional, uh, more moderate, uh, you know, list as the as the campaign went on, that it was still the fear of the other that drove them. It was still the fact that, well, I'm not going to vote for Hillary and right, I want right. a Republican no, president. You're right. A lot of that. That is that's what you said is exactly right, that the characteristic of polarization is not liking your party, but rather disliking the other. And you know, there's a there's a story behind that which goes like this: like, so imagine a world in which the voters are kind of mostly in the middle, but some to the left and some to the right, and that the parties are to the extreme of typical voters. Uh, if you're you, know, you might if if you're a Democrat, you might not love the Democratic Party. But the Republican Party is all the way over to the right, and as you perceive it, and then vice versa. So there's a lot. It, it does. 
it does. I mean, it seems like an unstable situation, but I don't know that, that the, but yet disliking the other party seems much more characteristic of polarization than, than liking your own. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, it's funny because it, it really has in, in the last four years or last three plus years, uh, really really fundamentally kind of reshaped even what we talk about because you know throughout my entire life at least the key bedrock issues for conservatives were business economy cutting taxes right uh, and on the left it was civil rights and uh, uh you know creating a more equal playing field but now uh the the key issues on the right were Previously, fringe issues like immigration, not to say that it's not important, but it was never anything that drove an election the way that it did in 2016. And on the left, you have several candidates talking about uh, Medicare for all and, uh, uh, you know, a Green New Deal, stuff like that, that was previously not necessarily the domain of people that were seeking the Democratic uh, nomination, which is just it, it's it's the, the fact that the policies are also on either side of, of, of the moderate wings of either party is kind of interesting. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, is there anything, uh, last question here, is there anything in the numbers that you have seen so far during the primaries that uh, you find interesting? Any 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 uh, trend uh, or, or candidate that has surprised you? Oh, yeah, but no, I can't tell you that, though, that you'll have... <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, I... It's, it's, I haven't really tried to, to make much of this. I, I, I would you know, read the polls just in probably with, with not much more perspective than like anybody would just who, who follows the news. It, it's, 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 I, I've not really found a systematic way of, I haven't found a systematic way of thinking about um, the primary election polls or, um, the large number of candidates, um, you know, can a candidate who's 4% in the polls now win? <laughs> and, and I, I don't, I, I really, I don't, there, there's probably is a way of thinking about it. And I, I know they do have polls where they ask people what their first choice is and their yeah. second choice. And, and I, I think there's somehow useful information there. If I were working for a campaign, I'd be doing my best trying to figure it all out, but I don't really have anything to, tell you useful then uh, then i will then i will ask you this uh because this is something that that i get a lot just because i do a podcast uh, and have literally no education when it comes to data science or polling i'm i'm just kind of a fan uh but people ask me well how much should i care about this how much how much is this something that matters and how much of it is just noise going forward so just on a general level if you were to give advice to to a, a political observer, how much should they care about the polls that are being trumpeted as front page news right now? Oh, um, I don't know why you should really care. I guess you should care more when the primary election, if you're if you're um, voting in the primaries, then you should care about that when it comes to your state, because. You probably don't want to waste your vote on a candidate that's not going to have a chance unless you think it'll send a valuable signal and the, the usual arguments. So at some point, that's going to be telling you information. I don't really know what 
There's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying, like, who would, who would I vote for if the election were held tomorrow? And would I vote for Donald Trump or the Democrat? Uh, you know, maybe there's a different Republican who has a chance. Like, who knows? It's, it's kind of harmless to think about. So, but, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's so otherwise you should really care. Good. At, All right. At this point. Well, then that officially is going to be my answer. Whenever, whenever anybody asks me, I'm just going to tell me, I'm just going to tell them that Andrew Gelman, a professor of statistics and political science at Columbia University told me, you want to know what? It's totally fine. You can watch oh. it if it's coming to your state, but otherwise, you know, may, maybe uh, don't, especially if it's causing you uh, stress. Don't worry about it. Well, so let much. me put it another way. There's a lot of, most of the important stuff in politics happens between elections. And if there's something that, I mean, seriously, if there's something that's happening at your local, state, or national politics, you know, and it bugs you, you know, call your congressman, um, you know, write a letter, go, go, um, you know, go to your congress member's office and hold a sign, and you know, they will. They, I think there's evidence that um, the politicians do respond, um, not always, but they do. They do respond to things, to citizen action, and so like don't. Don't sit there and like there's, there's stuff happening right now. So that that's going to be more that's more important and, and that's where you can probably make more of a difference. There we go. Well, uh, uh, Andrew, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for taking your time out to join us here on the podcast. It's been awesome. Sure. Thanks for your thoughtful questions. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>